0: The views expressed in this program are those of the participants. Look, I won't lie to you, there is a war going on here. And the AQMD has a bigger army. But we have something that Big Sister will never understand. What? A righteous cause. The freedom to come and go. to we'll be left alone. Does that sound strange to you? We're willing to die for that, right? No. A lot of people have died for that.
1: What
0: about you? I never had that choice to make before.
2: Could you?
1: Welcome everyone, it is Thursday, November 14th, 2019. I'm Bob Metz, and this is Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. Join us for an hour of discussion that's not right-wing, it's just right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the everything will be alright. As our show opener today suggests, yes, we are in a war. A war over the freedom to come and go, and the right to be left alone. In history, that concept has come to be known as laissez-faire, and that concept... And everything it implies will be the overriding theme of our show today. And it all begins right after our reminder that you can write us at feedback at just Subscribe to Just Right on iTunes and follow us on SoundCloud. Hear us on WBCQ and Channel 292 Shortwave. Visit us at www.justwritemedia.org where you can access all of Just Write's social media links, our archive broadcasts, and of course, where we encourage you to offer your financial support and in so doing become part of our effort to enlighten others about the true nature of freedom and capitalism. Now, given the global events of the past few months, particularly those affecting the Western world, the changing cultural face of Europe, the turmoil over Brexit in Britain, the recent election in Canada, and those leading up to the next election in the United States, it's become quite evident to me that what we call Western civilization has somehow lost its way, and even its identity, to the degree that everything that so many have fought and died for in establishing the world's first truly free nations is at risk. Today's show, I expect, will be the first in a series of just-right broadcasts more or less dedicated to getting back to basics in philosophy, economics, politics, and all of the related disciplines of thought and action related to each of these fields of human knowledge. It is a frightening and sobering thing to realize that all of the great strides in mankind's history have depended upon a tiny handful of extraordinary individuals who rose above the collective and made it possible for the mass of people to improve their lives and standard of living to a point never before experienced in known history. And all of this has essentially happened within the past two or three centuries or so. Now, one of the interesting things I've noticed over the past couple of decades is that we no longer have a general consensus or a common knowledge about the world around us, on the nature of freedom, or in fact on the fundamental nature of Western values themselves. This seems to almost not have been lost, but is being purposely erased. And the major voices who enunciated these values are rarely heard from in the mainstream of social and popular thought anymore, having been replaced with a relativism that encompasses everything from values to the apprehension of reality itself. We've seen some absurd examples of this on our campuses and in our newscasts, and some of us are just shaking our heads, wondering what is going on. So given the apparent necessity of getting back to basics, those ideas that form the base of a myriad of other ideas that necessarily follow from them. We need a revival of thought, thought that accurately, truly, and demonstrably reflects reality and the nature of human behavior, and how we fit into the big picture. Now in my own lifetime, I can only cite a handful of individuals whose work and ideas in the field of philosophy and economics and politics will ultimately survive the test of time by having identified the basic principles on which all human thought and action operates. Of course, at the top of that list of influencers sits Ayn Rand, whose philosophy of objectivism is to philosophy what Einstein's theory of relativity was to physics. Her 1957 fiction novel, Atlas Shrugged, became a bestseller in its time, and was followed by a myriad of non-fiction books containing essays and commentaries explaining the philosophy she enunciated in Atlas Shrugged. And among them were two books, The Virtue of Selfishness and Capitalism, the Unknown Ideal. The true nature of what was meant by Ayn Rand when she used the term selfishness and capitalism, continue to be misunderstood, misrepresented, and even condemned by the mainstream culture today. Sad to say, capitalism is still an unknown ideal by a majority of people, and even by many who claim to support capitalism, but really do not understand its fundamentals, meaning the philosophy on which it is based. Now on this particular pedestal, Ayn Rand stands alone. But because she's no longer with us, others now have taken on the task of making her philosophy of objectivism known to mankind. And I'd like to think I'm among them, but I'm just a bit player. Among the two most widely recognized spokespeople in this regard are Leonard Peikoff, who was designated her official intellectual heir, and Yaron Brook, who has actually been a past guest on our show. And it was the works of Ayn Rand that actually woke me from a deep philosophical slumber, and who impressed upon me the absolute necessity of any individual or society adopting a rational and objective philosophy. Because it is philosophy at its root that ultimately determines the values upon which life on this earth is based, whether for good or evil, and between those two options, I prefer the good life. (laughs) Okay? Other influential writers and philosophers and economists who have significantly affected my own views in this regard would include Isabel Patterson and John McMurray in the field of philosophy, and who helped me temper my own methods and arguments in presenting a freedom philosophy. And moving more to the discipline of economics, I would have to cite Ludwig von Mises, Thomas Sowell, Walter Williams, and of course, the late Milton Friedman. Now, I actually received a personal letter from Milton Friedman back in the mid-1980s addressed to me as president of the Freedom Party of Ontario. And he was working at the Hoover Institution at the time and wrote to thank us for including him as, well, quote-unquote, Mr. January in Freedom Party's calendar of individual freedom, which each month featured someone who we admired for their role in advancing the ideas of freedom and capitalism to whatever extent they might have done so. And, of course, Ayn Rand was included in that calendar, and I recall that Margaret Thatcher and Maria Montessori were also featured, among the others comprising the 12 months of the year, which I think also included Walter Williams, if I recall correctly. You can probably still find a copy of that calendar on the official site of the Freedom Party of Ontario at www.freedomparty.on.ca. Now, I should also point out that not all of the people I've cited are in total agreement with one another. And I have my own differences of opinions regarding some of their opinions. But there are always times to bring up those differences and times to ignore them, depending upon the context of the bigger picture that's being discussed. So unless it's necessary, I've made it a rule, never make a mountain out of a molehill, and never make a molehill out of a mountain to borrow from a well-known expression. But that's always a personal judgment call as when to do either. Now I'm sure there are a handful of other individuals I failed to mention, but these are among the ones who immediately come to mind for our purposes here, that being getting back to basics and re-establishing the groundwork necessary to understand the true nature of freedom and capitalism, which is our mission. Over the course of our presentations we'll actually be able to hear the voices of some of these people, and certainly cite various direct quotes from their writings. Hopefully we can do this in a way that will allow each of you listening to these broadcasts to become knowledgeable and confident advocates of freedom and capitalism within your own spheres of influence, because no one person can win the war for freedom unless they fare on his or her own. Finally, I suppose the last thing that strongly influenced my own views about freedom and capitalism were my own frontline experiences. Experiences with the Freedom Party of Ontario, the PPC, and the many various ad-hoc political campaigns too numerous to recall or mention that I got involved in over the past 40 years or so. The good thing is, it's all on the record and has been, if you will, diarized and made available to the public online in some way. Remember, if you didn't write it down, it didn't happen, and memory is no substitute for the written record. I honestly cannot remember each and every campaign or televised interview in which I was a guest or the key feature. Sometimes I might run across an interview I participated in online and can't recall it at all. And that's kind of scary in a way, but I've always had a relatively poor memory, which is part of the reason that I always made it a point to record everything I've done in this regard, including doing a show like this. So, where should we begin on our renewed journey to discovery of the essential and necessary basics about freedom and capitalism? Should we start with the basics of the philosophy of objectivism, you know, with metaphysics, epistemology, ethics, politics, or with aesthetics? Should we begin with a history lesson, or with some dire prediction of the future? Well, after wrestling with this very question for some considerable time, I decided to actually start in the middle of all of these factors and considerations, that being politics and economics, given that this is the most likely point at which the average uninitiated person can hop on board this journey of rediscovery. So I shall now cite the following from Ayn Rand's book, Capitalism, the Unknown Ideal, chapter 13, entitled, Let Us Alone, and which briefly in this passage offers a history of the origin of that term, laissez-faire. And so she writes about the 17th century when France was an absolute monarchy under Louis XIV, whose reign was, and I quote here, "...regarded as one of the brilliant periods of French history that provided the country with a national goal in the form of long and successful wars." He established France as the leading power and the cultural center of Europe. But national goals cost money. The fiscal policies of his government led to a chronic state of crisis solved by the immemorial expedient of draining the country through ever increasing taxation. Colbert, chief advisor of Louis XIV, was one of the early modern statists. He believed that government regulations can create national prosperity and that higher tax revenues can be obtained only from the country's economic growth, so he devoted himself to seeking a general increase in wealth by the encouragement of industry. The encouragement consisted of imposing countless government controls and minute regulations that choked business activity. The result was a dismal failure. Colbert was not an enemy of business no more than is our present administration, and when she was writing this, it was the Lyndon B. Johnson administration. And Colbert was eager to help fatten the sacrificial victims, and on one historic occasion he asked a group of manufacturers what he could do for industry. A manufacturer named Legendre answered, Laissez-nous faire, let us alone. Apparently the French businessmen of the 17th century had more courage than their American counterparts of the 20th and a better understanding of economics. They knew, that government help, quote-unquote, to business is just as disastrous as government persecution, and that the only way a government can be of service to national prosperity is by keeping its hands off. All of mankind's history is the practical demonstration of the same basic principle, no matter what the variance of form. The degree of human prosperity, achievement, and progress is a direct function and corollary of the degree of political freedom. As witness, ancient Greece, the Renaissance, the 19th century, end quote. So with that bit of history now under our belts, coming up next on this side of our first bumper break is the voice of Leonard Peikoff, as was recorded in front of a classroom of objectivist students a few decades ago. And on the return side of our bumper, you'll hear the voice of Yaron Brook. Both excerpts are taken from the site of the Ayn Rand Institute and both concern the nature of laissez-faire capitalism. I should point out too that both Peikoff and Brook are promoters of objectivism, but that both of them have been in conflict with each other as well when it comes to objectivism applied in practice. So let's listen in, shall we?
0: Laissez-faire capitalism. In other words, the complete separation of state and economics just as we have the separation now of state and church. So I do not mean by capitalism the mixed economy, which is basically what we have today, which is some fascism and some socialism and some capitalism and a few other things all tossed into a pot, uh, a melange of conflicting ideas. I mean by capitalism pure laissez-faire capitalism, where the foundation of the system is individual rights. But I hasten to say that by individual rights, I mean it as the founding fathers of this country meant it. I do not talk about the rights of an embryo, only of human beings once they're born. And I do not offer them the right to a trip to Florida, a guaranteed job, guaranteed hospital bed, daycare, nightcare, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. They have only got the right to life Liberty, the pursuit of happiness, and property, the property they can earn by their own effort. And we say that the function of government should be to protect these rights, and only these rights. How can you violate these rights? What does the government have to protect us from? Basically, there's only one way to someone to take away your life, your liberty, your property, and that's to initiate physical force against you. Steal your property, tie you up, stab you in the heart, etc. There's an indirect form of force, which is fraud, where I rook you out of your property by misrepresentation, so you're still doing it against your will. The government for uh, an objective of society is strictly an agency to bar the use of physical force, direct or indirect and thereby to leave each individual secure in the knowledge that what he achieves by his own effort is his, he is completely, his rights are inalienable within his own sphere. No one and no group can uh, uh, interfere. By the same token, the government offers him nothing. It doesn't offer him welfare or special favors of any kind. It's not in favor of any individual or group. It doesn't offer special, quote, protection to TV watchers or stock traders or big businessmen or small businessmen or labor or farmers or subsidies for college students, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Laissez-faire means hands off. Leave us alone. No welfare state, no Social Security, no Medicare. What would there be then in under capitalism? Three main agencies of the government. The police, to protect the citizens from domestic criminals. The military, to protect the citizens from foreign aggressors. And the court system, so that uh, citizens would be able to resolve disputes in a civilized, rational fashion, without the need to have recourse to war on the streets, which would be back to the rule of force. Now, we hold that only this, quote, extreme, in other words, consistent an approach to government, can or ever has or ever will work. If you try to mix this approach with some elements of government control as we have today, and of course the government controls have been growing and growing, we hold that the end result of this mixed economy is got to be dictatorship. Not in the sense that it's inevitable, but it is inevitable if the country doesn't change its direction. The mixed economy tells you the government can step in on behalf of some group and give them a favor. Of course, which makes all the other groups hurt, because that favor had to come from them, since the government produces nothing. It can just hurt one group in order to help another. So that group clamors for some more controls, handouts, or whatever, and then another group does. This has been the history of the United States for over well over 100 years. And if you look at the whole history, you'll see that every set of controls has necessitated further controls and further controls. And today, Our political movements don't even question that we need more and more controls. They simply divide over which controls should come next. The liberals, for instance, tell us we need more and more economic controls, but let's not have spiritual uh, or moral controls. And the conservatives say, no, we need economic freedom, but we need more controls over thought, have to legislate against obscenity, we have to legislate against abortion, we have to mandate prayer in the schools, we have to teach creation uh, uh, as uh, on a par with the theory of evolution. So the conservatives are actually worse from the point of view of injecting the government into intellectual ideological matters and trying to mandate a viewpoint down the throats of helpless young students. The point being that although these two groups fight vociferously, they are both for the same end result. Bigger government, more controls, no matter what their rhetoric is.
2: Okay, so let's start with capitalism. How do most people who defend capitalism defend it? Well, it's almost always from some type of utilitarian perspective. It's almost always from the perspective of, well, capitalism's good for everybody. Or capitalism is good for most people. With greatest happiness for the greatest number. Or in a kind of a new spin that I've, I've, I've encountered over the last year, but, it, but, it, but actually a spin that's growing in dominance uh, among certain libertarians. Uh, There's something called Bleeding Heart Libertarians. And, and if you go bleedingheartlibertarian.com, I think it is, um, it's a fascinating site. I mean, you, you chuckle, but it's, it's actually interesting because th- these libertarians are actually quite philosophical about this and they take, they're among those who take philosophy seriously in applying It's the wrong philosophy, in my view, but they take it seriously. And their view is we should judge the morality of capitalism based on how it deals with the poor, with the weakest in society. So in their view, capitalism is good. Capitalism is moral because the really, really, really poor do well under capitalism. It's the best system for the really, really, really poor. So if you rank all the systems based on how the really, really, really poor do, capitalism does best. So that's the foundation. Now, the problem is that there's a certain plausibility to all of these, right? Think about what capitalism has done in in human history. In a span of, you know, a hundred years from 1800 to 1900, adjunct poverty of, of, of subsistence farming was pretty much eradicated from the West people by the end of the 19th century had electricity. I mean, can't we say, look, everybody benefits from capitalism because who doesn't benefit from electricity? Everybody benefits from electricity. Everybody is better off for all the wealth creation that was created during the 19th century. Everybody, who's not? Well, you should read some of the people who wrote in the late 19th century who hates electricity, who hates capitalism, who hate their increase in standard of living, who hate the fact that their life expectancy is, is longer. You have to have a standard to determine that everybody is better off. By our standard of human life, yes. But not by their standard, many of them were miserable because they had the wrong standard. I mean, read Marx. right? Marx rails about capitalism. He doesn't say capitalism doesn't increase standard of living. He doesn't say electricity isn't good materially. But he says it causes alienation. It causes unhappiness. It causes us to be miserable. All this materialism. I mean, this isn't Marx, but some of the commentators. All this materialism is bad for the soul. So it's not good for us. I mean, many people were unhappy because of capitalism. It's part of why the intellectuals who were riling against capitalism during that period gained strength and gained momentum. And why, systematically, we've moved away from capitalism. Because most people don't see it as good for them. They see it indeed as bad for them. And indeed, for some of it is bad. If they have the wrong standards, if their standard is power, or if their standard is control, or if their standard is being the witch doctor, then are they better off when there's freedom, when reason reigns, when capitalism is thriving? So there's some plausibility to this argument, but it's not right. It's not true. Not everybody is better off under capitalism. Not if you understand what better off means.
1: Well that's a somewhat sobering thought, isn't it? This is a point that vaguely touches upon the whole argument about the left and its ultimate death wish in general. Something we'll get back to again in the future. Now I imagine that there are those of you who, just having heard these two objectivists talk about having a right to life, liberty and property, may see a contradiction in the right to life part of that philosophy given that Peikoff explicitly stated that the unborn have no rights. After all, aren't anti-abortion movements called pro-life, and aren't they campaigning for the right to life? Now you might recall that we recently devoted a whole broadcast of Just Right to the abortion issue. That was a June 6th broadcast of this year, Abortion and the Moral Dilemma, Just Right number 611. And so I don't intend to revisit that particular issue again here. Except for those who take an absolutist yes or no on the abortion issue from the moment of conception to birth, and they are a significant but loud minority on both sides of that issue, most people draw a line somewhere between conception and birth where abortion is acceptable and where it is not. And that is an issue we addressed on that episode. Ayn Rand herself was only considering the first trimester in her advocacy of a woman's right to an abortion, But this is not an issue I intend to revisit in our broader discussion today on the nature of capitalism and laissez-faire. However, I will readdress and resolve the seeming contradiction which I've done before on a philosophical level about the rights issues involved in the abortion debate at some time during our Back to Basics Review of Freedom and Capitalism when that opportunity best presents itself. Now, obviously, another issue that would seriously bother many about the whole laissez-faire approach to government is the broader issue of government benefits, from welfare to health care to pensions to what might be regarded as the whole, you know, we-are-our-brother's-keeper philosophy. The idea that these benefits should ultimately be left out of the hands of government, I know, scares the hell out of a lot of people, particularly those who currently depend on those government benefits For their own survival. Though it seems impossible to those who have never experienced a truly free market society, these benefits and securities are perfectly achievable without the quote-unquote help of government. Now, I'm not saying completely without government, still functioning in its proper context. Remember, government is a gun. That's precisely why its essential functions consist of the police, the military, and the courts. And these are all manifestations of the objective and just use of force. Now, there's absolutely nothing wrong with wanting to have those securities and benefits, but it depends entirely upon how they are achieved. Anytime someone advocates doing good, quote-unquote, through government, he's saying that he's going to do good by picking up a gun and achieving his goal, whatever it might be, by initiating the use of force. And that is not the acceptable way to do it. That has ultimate bad effects for everyone, and eventually will wipe out the very benefits that people think that they are advocating and fighting for. So without any further delay, let's see how objectivism in general deals with these questions and issues of what ultimately boil down to, I guess, poverty. Here again, in the same order as in our previous break, on this side of the bumper, Leonard Peikoff, and on the return side, Yaron Brook. Uh, you talked about the, the capitalism in that the politics would just be the police and the, the law courts and the military, but what is going to be done for like the, the sick people that are in need of health care and they can't pursue their own happiness if, if the government is restricted to just that? What's going to happen to them? I mean, isn't this just some cruel well, why do
0: you restrict your question to just the sick people? What about the hungry people?
1: Well, them too. What about the homeless
0: people? And, uh, whether people without clothes or the people without jobs what about the people that are unhappy because they have to choose what job to take and the only way to pursue their own happiness is to the government to assign them a job so I mean the logical end result of your question is going to be total omnipotent totalitarian planning now what we say is society must be geared since the standard is man's life must be geared to the requirements of human survival. And the requirements, which I tried to indicate, are thought, independent thought, and then creative, productive work. If men were not capable of this, the whole species would survive. If if the vast majority were not capable of this, they were all basket cases, the struggling minority couldn't keep them alive. So what you have to say is this. There is a minority who might be sick or malformed or run over by a truck or whatever and literally be unable to survive on their own then we say that minority does not go to the government the government is the agency with a gun the government is the only agency with the power of physical force if you are in a problem you have no justification of going to the government and saying hold that gun against his head and relieve him of some of his sustenance for which he worked, because I'm in need. We do not hold need as a standard. The right to the pursuit of happiness was the exact wording. And that didn't mean the right to happiness. It meant the right to take whatever actions you could take on your own. What do you have to depend on, then, if you're helpless? And let's even say you're helpless or no fault of your own. Charity. Voluntary private charity. Remember, this will be for a small minority of people, because there'll be no incentive built into the system for everybody to go on welfare. There is no welfare. But it used to be the case that if you had a disaster, for instance, if a farm was burned down in the 19th century through an accident, the farmer was richer afterwards than he was before, because there was tremendous goodwill in society, and all the neighbors would, would pitch in. There wasn't a problem with looking after hardship cases, because they were a small minority. But once you make it a matter of right, then you can see yourself before your eyes. The needy multiply and grow because they get the rewards. And more and more people drop out of the productive realm because they are being penalized for success. So you have a completely inverted society. Now you say to me, what if absolutely no one would help Miss X? If literally no one will, who is going to be the one that will go to the government and hold a gun on them and force them to do it. It's an unreal situation. The only way a wealthy country, which is what a capitalist country becomes very soon, the only way they would let Ms. X die would be if there was a massive hatred of all for all, so that they were indifferent to human suffering. But that doesn't happen in a free country. It only happens in a communist or other slave state. So you don't have to worry about charity it's always forthcoming, but the point is the system should not be judged according to objectivism by how it helps the poor. It should be judged by how it helps, how it enables a human being to achieve human stature and achieve a human life as defined by the whole course of ethics. And therefore helping the poor is a completely peripheral side issue. We do not give a man moral credit for giving to charity. He can't go around according to objectivism and say, I just gave to charity, so I'm a great guy and my life is justified. He has to justify his life by something hard, which is thought, work, and creativity. Any bum can give money away. So it's okay to do it, but that's not what your virtue depends on, and that's not what the virtue of the system depends on.
2: So what about the poor? Right? Because that's always the first question you ever get in every lecture on capitalism to almost any group. And that indicates to what extent altruism is so deeply ingrained in almost any audience. The first thing that crosses their mind is not, wow, wow, isn't this cool, all the production and wealth that's going to be created in a capitalism? Aren't we all, you know, it's going to be so much, my life is going to be so much better because of this. Their first thought goes to, oh, but what about the other? What about them? Not what about me, how I'm going to pursue my values, or this is going to be really cool for me. But what about the poor? Well, my answer is, which poor? Are the poor all one uniform group? There's a false premise here. What happens to the virtuous poor? The poor, productive, or honest, or rational, or whatever ability they have under capitalism. What happens to them? They work. Nobody needs to take care of them. Right? They work, they create, they build, they take care of themselves. They're capable of it, they have the freedom to do it. Right? In their minds, in this altruistic, collectivistic mindset, there's this group that has to be taken care of. And under capitalism, we still have to take care of them. And and what are we going to do? But clearly, the ones that are productive are going to take care of themselves. Well, what about the ones who don't want to be productive? You know, what happens under capitalism to the lazy drunk who doesn't want to go to work? What happens? They suffer. They have a lousy life. They might starve. But it is your responsibility to take care of them? Is it your moral responsibility to take care of them? If they've chosen this life? Is that what charity is for? No. What about those who can't take care of themselves? Right, there's this whole category. right? People who really can't take care of themselves. Maybe that's what charity's for. There's families, there are other ways in which to take care of them, but but then there's charity. But how many people like that are there in any given society? I mean, it's a tiny little quantity of people. To to make that your primary worry about what will happen under capitalism, what will be the big issue, how do we take care of this tiny of smallest minorities that can't really take care of themselves, to make that your obsession is absurd. And yet, so many people are obsessed just by that question. Okay. I don't know what charity is going to look like under capitalism. I don't think history is a good guide here. Because we've always lived in societies dominated by altruism. I suspect charity will be very discriminating, it will discriminate between those that deserve charity and those that don't deserve charity. And it will be discriminating based on virtue and based on, to some extent, you know, the justice of it, right? Some people, it's unjust to help. If Tui's in trouble, how many of you are jumping to help him? Right? He's an evil guy. If bad stuff happens to him, that's justice. So... I suspect that in a free capitalist world, charity will look very different than it looks today. It will be more discriminating. The charity for kind of people who can't will be much more discriminating. Charity will be a lot more focused on creating of values like hospitals and children and things like that. But it's not a big issue and it wouldn't be a big issue because it wouldn't be needed. It wouldn't be that important. What's important is what? Production, creation, building, living life. Right? So, beware of getting caught up in this, oh no, everybody will take care of under capitalism. Don't worry, everybody's gonna live a better life. Charity will give to everybody. Nobody's going to worse off because we're all nice. We're nice. We're benevolent. But that's why we're discriminating. And that's why we're just. So, Note two, if the virtuous are the ones who gain the most, if you will, or the ones who gain in capitalism, who are the ones who suffer the most from the next economy? Who are the ones who suffer the most from statism? It is the virtuous. Statism is about penalizing virtue. It's the productive, it's the creative, it's the entrepreneurs, it's the businessmen. One of the reasons objectivists are so passionate about defending business and businessmen, in spite of the cronyism and the problems with kind of the mixed premises that many businessmen have, is the fact that we recognize the inherent virtue that is production, that is creation, that is building up wealth. Nobody else can do that. Nobody else sees that. Nobody else is focused on what is, what is virtue and what it means in the context of business. So again, that is one of those aspects that makes us unique in our approach to capitalism, to business, to the world out there. The mixed economy's biggest victims are those of us who are ambitious, whether we're poor, whether we're middle class, whether we're wealthy. It's ambition that the mixed economy and statism destroy. It's entrepreneurship, it's creation. That's what they destroy. That's what we should be fighting against. We should be fighting for the ambitious poor, the ambitious middle class, the ambitious rich, the virtuous, the good guys. And we need to hold in our minds that they're good guys and they're bad guys. And capitalism is for the good guys.
1: You're listening to Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. There's a lot to take in and absorb in what we just heard, and I won't pretend to be able to address every possible question or concern I imagine many might have in attempting to integrate the ideal of objectivism into our daily practical lives. So if there's something that we've left unanswered or that we didn't deal with, remember, you can always write us with your concerns and questions, and we'll do our best to answer them and to share those concerns and answers with our audience. When Yaron Brooks says that his response to the question, what about the poor, is which poor, that's a valid consideration, and it's a good way of addressing that concern. But I think that there is a critical motivation behind that question that went unaddressed. What I mean is, just why do you suppose that so many people bring up this concern, what about the poor, as their first consideration when discussing any issues of freedom or capitalism? Now it's been my experience on the front lines of discussing the question what about the poor that the real question being asked is what about me? Should I find myself in the position of being poor and helpless? I can't count how often I've caught people making an altruist argument that was really made in their own misguided self-interest. That's a legitimate worry and perhaps all of us share it at some point in our lives. But it's not one motivated by altruism in the sense of being a genuine concern for others. Altruism is sacrifice, not charity. Most people use the word sacrifice in a completely non-sacrificial way. They mean that they've given up something of a lesser value for something else of greater value to them. I sacrifice buying that second vehicle or that vacation abroad for my children's education is a common expression of this false notion of sacrifice. But when objectivists use the term sacrifice, they mean giving up a greater value for a lesser one, which is indeed a sacrifice. Giving up a life of freedom for a moment of security is a perfect example of such a true sacrifice. Woe to the nation that values security more than freedom, for in doing so it shall lose both. But the nation that values freedom more than security shall gain both. Some say this sentiment was originally attributed to Benjamin Franklin, whose actual quote, as I understand it, was, those who would give up essential liberty to purchase a little temporary safety deserve neither liberty nor safety. But when it comes to charity itself, in the true sense of that word, It's actually remarkable how truly generous people are if they are in a position to be so. I think that Yaron Brook may have missed the mark a bit when he suggested that history was not a way of discovering how a truly charitable society might operate. But that's a history we'll revisit again on a future broadcast. And of course, let's be clear that there's no such thing as involuntary charity. There is no such concept that relates to reality. If I point a gun at Peter and force him to give his money to Paul, Peter is not being charitable, and nor am I. Peter is simply a victim of a robbery, and I'm the robber. Now, objectivists keep stressing voluntary charity. At all times, it's the proper moral principle on which to act. However, charity alone is not the only solution to many of these issues. There are many other methods from private insurance to private and voluntary forms of mutual assistance and cooperation that may not necessarily involve quote-unquote charity. And remember, these are all ideals being set up as the direction in which governments and society should move. No one would suggest that we just suddenly and overnight move from the government assistance in place today to a completely laissez-faire condition, although wherever that would be possible, without unduly harming those truly dependent on such assistance, we should do it as soon as possible. But what about taking some baby steps in the right direction? For example, in many cases where government claims to be helping the poor, they're outright lying. This is particularly true in those cases where governments do not direct their financial assistance directly to those in need, but instead take over entire industries like public transit and hospitals, services they say the poor need, and make them cheaper or make it a free-for-all for everyone regardless of need. This is destructive to all objectives because it unnecessarily destroys the very resources necessary to actually assist those in genuine need. And then there's the very complicated and nuanced issue of circumstances where the government can legitimately help some in need, in the case where the monies being expended by government were not coercively raised for the purpose of wealth transfers, based on a perpetual taxation scheme to transfer wealth from those who earned it to those who didn't. To some extent, this touches on the separate issues of taxation and government financing itself, an issue on which I might find myself in disagreement with most objectivists who argue that all forms of government financing are quote-unquote coercive and therefore immoral. But if a government is a valid institution, something that objectivists, though not all libertarians, (laughs) agree with, then it follows that such a government must be paid for by the people it serves. And I don't see that armies, police, and court systems should be financed through some form of charity, but I do agree with the principle of voluntary payment. Now, to the extent that government is delegated and limited to its proper functions, it has long been my opinion that only consumption and sales taxes would fall under the umbrella of voluntary financing, along with some forms of registration and filing fees related to the protection of life, liberty, and property. And yes, that means no income taxes. No property taxes, taxes that were once unheard of in the early years of this nation, and still do not exist in a small number of state and municipal jurisdictions around North America. I've talked about this before on past broadcasts and will again as the proper opportunity presents itself. But another reason that people keep asking some version of what about the poor question is because we live in a predominantly socialist environment, the predominant part of our mixed economy which was once predominantly capitalist. So we increasingly live in a social system that will perpetuate poverty and its inevitability as a given. Just look at all of the more socialist countries relative to their freer counterparts. The principle is consistent and without exception. The degree of a nation's freedom, both personal and economic, is proportionate to the degree of its wealth and prosperity relative to a nation socially and economically controlled by governments. So no wonder people are so preoccupied with that question. Just look at the growth of visible poverty in our society, a growth that literally accompanied the growth of the welfare state. And still, poverty activists continue to call for the same actions and measures that have not solved a single thing, just made the need even greater while throwing everyone else into an increasing state of poverty. After all, robbing Peter to pay Paul enriches neither of them and only buys time for Paul for a very short period indeed. Because as soon as you've robbed Peter to pay Paul, and Paul still remains dependent, well then you have to continue robbing Peter. And robbing is exactly the appropriate moral term to use when one relies on the use of force to make the wealth transfer from one to the other. Society, whether through charity or through government, can't help everyone who's in need or who gets themselves into trouble. Hey. I was singing her words. I could hear her voice. I could feel her, like she was
0: here. That's because your
1: sister was strong. You thought that she was using again, but she wasn't. She was clean. I wish there was something we could do. Can't we send her to rehab or something? No one can help her until she's ready to get clean. quit school
0: to take care of her mother when cancer got bad.
1: That says a lot about her.
0: After her mother passed it was like she had to get away. When she moved to the city I was just so happy for her.
1: Now there's a couple of perfect examples of what Yaron Brook was talking about earlier. Some people can't be helped and maybe they shouldn't be while others find themselves relying on private means of helping, such as family and friends. And if you think that sucks, you might be right. But what might suck even worse is what can happen when government steps in to try and help and assist every case of need and desperation that might arise. For example, here's just a small sample of how that situation is expressed in the daily newspapers we read every day. Millennials confronting emergency with housing reads the Financial Post headline on July 3, 2019, written by Bobby Ristova. And this was, of course, published before the last Canadian federal election. Quote, It could take millennials up to 29 years to save enough money to afford a home in some of Canada's biggest cities. It's an emergency, Paul Kershaw, the founder of Generation Squeeze, a non-profit group that advocates for young Canadians, told the Financial Post. A new report by Generation Squeeze suggests the affordability gap between baby boomers and their children is startling, noting that to afford a home, the average millennial has to save for eight years longer than his counterpart in 1976. Kershaw says the report was published now in hopes of having candidates for the fall federal election take the housing crisis seriously. He and his team list a number of recommendations including reducing other millennial expenses such as tuition, childcare, and transit, helping renters make more money, and a national housing strategy it says is long overdue with a focus on homes as a place to live rather than a quote-unquote stock market, end quote. And with that, there again, we see another classic and total rejection of any idea of a laissez-faire free market, the only possible long-term solution to this problem. Worse, he's advocating more of the same government spending that's causing the emergency crisis in the first place. Just where do you suppose Paul Kershaw and his Generation Squeeze group think the money they demand will come from? Well, they think that they'll be able to get the government to squeeze the money out of non-millennials. But the money is in reality coming out of their own futures that will be squeezed all the tighter because they're calling for the government to use force to achieve their narrow ends. It's an unavoidable consequence, no matter how much they would like to delude themselves. And here's the big joke, based on the report itself. If it takes eight years longer to save for a home in 2019 than it did in 1976 now a total of 29 years, what do you suppose the affordability of homes will be like in another 29 years? Of course, all of these stats are completely meaningless. A millennial who makes a million dollars a year can probably afford a home well within a year, (laughs) whereas a millennial who's only employed part-time or works for extremely low wages will never be able to afford a home. Affordability of anything completely depends upon the price of a given commodity versus the income of the person who intends to purchase it. When politicians talk about affordable housing, what they really mean is unaffordable housing, housing made unaffordable because of government policies, including trying to help the poor. Think about the ridiculous cycle being set in motion by this process. In order to create affordable housing for those who can't afford it, the government must tax the people already in housing that they may already be struggling to afford thanks to ever increasing taxes. Then by transferring their taxes to people to buy housing, they're artificially increasing the demand on housing, in turn driving the prices of all housing up in the process. It's a never-ending cycle, one I've personally documented and watched over the past 40 years plus, a cycle that only gets worse with each turn of the cycle, and the problem itself never gets solved. The only reason politicians promise to make the unaffordable affordable is to get votes from those foolish enough to fall for their false promises. And then there's this one. Rising rents push some into deep poverty. London Free Press, September 19th, by Heather Rivers. Quote, It's a really tough rental market in London, particularly that bottom income market, who have seen little or no growth in their incomes for many, many years. Abe Utschorn, London Homeless Coalition Chair, said Wednesday. Rental housing markets are bad for renters and great for landlords. The availability of units is very tight, particularly in the more affordable end of things. Two-thirds of low-income Londoners spend more than half their income just to keep a roof over their head and the heat and electricity on, according to the Canadian Rental Housing Index, a database that compiles rental housing stats across Canada. I think the very simple solution for this is to have a conversation about what an appropriate social assistance rate is, Udshuren said. Jeff Schlemmer, a London lawyer and housing advocate, said shelter allowances for those on disability have not kept pace with the rental market. There's been a lot of talk about building more affordable housing, but it hasn't really happened in any numbers that are proportionate to the problem." End quote. Well, duh. Jeff Schlemmer, you might recall, is the same lawyer and housing advocate that I debated weekly on Left, Right and Centre, and as a total lefty, He'll never see the light, no matter how much it blinds him. Then there's this one Unprecedented stimulus failed to boost long term growth, by Philip Cross in the Financial Post, October 10th. Quote, Despite a return to deficit spending intended to boost the economy, Canada's annual real GDP growth over the last four years has remained stuck in the range of 1 to 2 percent, where it has been mired for most of the past decade. End quote. Now recall our Ayn Rand quote on laissez-faire from the opening part of our show, where she said, Apparently the French businessmen of the 17th century knew that government help to business is just as disastrous as government persecution, and that the only way a government can be of service to national prosperity is by keeping its hands off. Now here's an eye-catching headline. <laughs> national Post, October 30th, by Gwen Morgan. How screwed are you? <laughs> Canada's national debt amounts to 18700 for every man, woman and child and is growing by more than $54 million a day. Quote, In the 2015 federal election campaign, the Harper Conservatives proudly announced a no-deficit budget after years of working to rebalance spending and revenues following stimulus deficits necessitated by the 2008 global economic crisis. Justin Trudeau's Liberals behind in the polls when the writ was dropped announced modest deficit spending totaling $25 billion in the first three years, returning to a balanced budget in the fourth. Although this was seen as a risky strategy at the time, the Liberals were rewarded with a decisive majority. That $25 billion ballooned to $70 billion, and Trudeau's promise of a balanced budget has been replaced by a $93 billion deficit over the next four years. The NDP and Green election platforms proposed even higher spending. Yet despite campaigns featuring such a staggering accretion of our national debt, pollsters found that deficit spending didn't rank as a major election concern for most Canadians. The election results confirm that most Canadians have lost all fear of deficit spending, no matter how large, end quote. And then there's this letter to the editor from October 2nd in the London Free Press. Deficit, a disgrace. It is simply disgraceful that Justin Trudeau is now talking about increasing our national debt by approximately $27 billion next year. The current interest on the federal debt is $26 billion a year. The provincial Liberals increased Ontario's debt to over $350 billion, which now requires $12 billion in interest payments annually. Imagine if that money were available to invest in health care, affordable housing, etc., Trudeau bashes Doug Ford for trying to rein in the Ontario debt, while Trudeau seems not to display any regard that today's children will face insurmountable debt loads in the future due to his lack of fiscal understanding. It was written by Ian K in London. And then finally, this letter to the editor from the same day by Gary A. from Karuna. The heading reads, A Terrifying Future. Quote, I am reading in your paper daily of a Prime Minister who wants to give everyone in this country a lifestyle like his own. This we know is impossible. I have adult children and grandchildren who in the next 20 years at this rate of spending will be living in tin shanties and paying 80% taxes to keep the wolf away at the door. Justin Trudeau, like his father, does not seem to understand all this money he's spending comes from our back-breaking work, not his. I am really terrified. To see what our future will be. End quote. Well, Gary, you're not the only one. Fortunately, no one's in an absolute position to predict the future, but for my own part, I'm gonna go out in a lemon predict that we'll be back with another episode of Just Right next week, and you are invited to join us then when we will continue our journey in the right direction. And until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. We'll see you then. I am sure many of you have heard the funny the old story about the two poles who met one another and one pole said to the other, Tell me, do you know the difference between capitalism and socialism? And the other pole said, No, I don't know the difference. And the first pole said, Well, you know, under capitalism, man exploits
2: man. And the other fellow shook his head. Well, under socialism, he said, it's vice versa.